this weekend, I'm going to be preaching from James chapter 2. So if you'd like to, you can open up your Bibles or click to turn to, uh, since we don't have paper Bibles anymore. We all use our phones. That's okay. Uh, you can turn in your Bibles to James chapter 2. That's where I'll be this weekend. And so uh, the last few times that I've taught and preached, I've taught out of James. Uh, and so it's kind of been our sermon series on the side, that as Pastor Charlie's walked through Second Corinthians and walked through the life of David and all of those things, I've been kind of slowly going through the book of James. So we'll probably make it all the way through in the next three years or so, depending on how quickly we get through this. Uh, James 2 uh, is where I'm going to be at this weekend. I taught through this book uh, with our student ministry uh, earlier this year, and it has very quickly became one of, one of my favorite books to study, uh, one of the most convicting books uh, that is a part of uh, my pretty consistent reading. Uh, whenever I need uh, some encouragement or some real deep spiritual conviction, I go to the book of James. It's become very quickly one of the books I love the most. Now, that opinion about the book of James is not shared by all of the great church fathers. And so there's this man named Martin Luther uh, in the 1500s, and he was part of the Reformation movement and the Protestant movement, the movements that have really um, given us language and, and vocabulary for the theology that we would cling to even today in our churches today. And so, so the Protestant movement is where Fellowship of the Rockies finds its basis in. I mean, we're a Protestant church. We're part of the Protestant movement. That started with this man, Martin Luther. Uh, he's, he's an incredible theologian. He wrote a book called The Bondage of the Will. You should go and read that book. And I'm going to stop nerding out about him briefly to tell you that he actually hated the book of James. Uh, he did not like this book. Uh, in fact, in many ways, I don't know that he fought for it to not be part of the canon of scripture, but, but he really did not like it. He felt like the book of James taught a different salvation than the works in the letters of Paul. And he had problems bringing that together. And so it really frustrated him. He called this book an epistle of straw, which in his day is like fighting words, but today just kind of lost its meaning. He didn't like it is basically all that I have to say about that. He called it an epistle of straw. And so the, the text that we're going to walk through today is James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. Uh, and this, this is the passage about dead faith. Many of you have probably heard it. And if you haven't, uh, it's one of those texts that people argue and debate about pretty consistently. Obviously, Martin Luther had problems with it, didn't like it very much. Uh, but what I want to stress to us before we even get into the reading of it this morning is when we come to a text like this in Scripture that challenges and, and pushes back on, on some of the maybe ideas and concepts that we've learned for so long and, and helps us to shape those, uh, it, can, it can create tension. But, but when we come to the text simply to figure out an argument or to find what we think about a debate, or, or learn how to debate somebody else, we quickly misinterpret the passage. We quickly miss the point of the passage. And so as we read today, uh, what I want to stress to you is that this, this text that we're going to read has less to do with your works and much more to do with your faith. That's the dichotomy we need to remember. So let me read James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. So buckle your seatbelts. This is going to take a second. James chapter 2, verse 14, it says this, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but does not have works, can such a faith save him? And that's where we all become uncomfortable together. That's okay. We'll walk through it. Verse 15, If a brother or sister is without clothes and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, stay warm, and be well fed, but you don't give them what the body needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith, if it does not have works, is dead by itself. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without works and I will show you faith by my works. You believe that God is one. Good. Even the demons believe and they shudder. You senseless person. 
Are you willing to learn that faith without works is useless? Wasn't Abraham our father justified by works in offering Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was active together with his works, and by works faith was made complete. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. And you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, wasn't Rahab the prostitute also justified by works in receiving the messengers and sending them out by a different route? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. And so the tension begins. We feel it deep within ourselves. And in these moments, we come to scripture like this. It can be scary to read. It can be intimidating, especially uh, uh, when it's difficult to understand or difficult to square with other things that we have heard or read or seems to be uh, different than other parts of the Bible. Um, but it's hard to face this passage just simply on its face value right here and not become very reflective of our own actions, right? Because that's where much of the source for debate or argument comes from within the scripture is not actually whether or not there's uh, tension between this scripture and other parts of scripture, but, but it means something for our own works and actions if we read it incorrectly, right? So, so, so when we come to this argument or debate, we, we, we want to try to justify ourselves by thinking about, well, what works do I have? And then we begin to consider, is my faith dead or is it alive or, or any of these things? And it becomes very confusing of a mess very quickly. But the idea behind this passage is that we would begin to reflect on our own faith and on our own actions. And, and this might not surprise you, but that's exactly what James wants us to do as a result of his words. And so in the background of this entire text that talks about actions and our deeds and those things, that's not actually the question it's asking. The question it's asking is, what kind of faith do you want to have? So James is asking us to reflect. He's asking the church to reflect. What type of faith do you have? What type of faith do you want to have? And maybe for you this weekend, you're hearing this scripture, and, it's, and you're confused about this passage, and it really does seem to be at odds with the letters of Paul in which he very specifically communicates that we're saved by faith alone, through grace alone, by Christ alone. And maybe you've heard that phraseology before, the point is this, these types of questions that we have about interpretation and about understanding scripture, they can be difficult to address and to understand, but here's my challenge for us, is when we come to challenging texts like this, things that convict us or challenge us or make us think differently or even confuse us, this is not an invitation to take a step back from scripture. This is not an invitation to step back from what God has to say. This is not an invitation to, in your daily reading, read this passage and say, you know what? I'm actually going to turn back to Psalms and find some encouragement today. This is an invitation for us to know God deeper. It's an invitation for us to press in deeper to things that we do not understand and allow God and his word and Jesus himself to help us to understand. It's, it's an invitation to know, to know God deeper. And so that being said, here's a very brief explanation of this passage uh, in this section of James when it comes to salvation, because I don't, I don't want to harp on the debate argument issue very long. I don't think that's really what the text is speaking to, um, but this is what I believe James is teaching throughout his entire book, and is that he, James is not saying that our deeds or our acts give us salvation, but that they are a result of it. So, so our good deeds, so to speak, do not cause our salvation, but they are a result of the salvation that we have experienced. I believe he's teaching us that our actions are the result of the faith that we have. 
They're a result of the faith that we have. So truly, this passage is not about our works at all. It's not about our works. It is a meditation on faith, and it is us asking the question, what kind of faith do we want to have? And so James frames this idea about walking through what kind of faith we want to have by pointing out uh, and, and specifically fighting against a certain type of faith, an apathetic faith. So that's the enemy that he kind of frames this passage with is the apathetic faith. And so apathy is simply a lack of interest, enthusiasm, or concern. It's laziness or indifference. Um, of course, James uses a way more direct term than apathy. He calls that faith dead. He calls it not alive. And so he gives a, a, a very long explanation of why an apathetic faith is, not, is no faith really at all. See, where there is apathy, there's not been transformation of the heart and life by Jesus. And so in order to help us, the readers, understand our faith, he frames it by fighting against one of our greatest enemies in the Christian walk, and that is apathy. Apathy is the exact opposite of the fruit of the Spirit. So where the fruit of the Spirit is, is these attitudes and actions that are inspired and, and driven within us by the Spirit of God being within us as a result of our salvation, apathy is the indifference to those things. It, it is turning aside from those things and continuing on to be the old creation that we were prior to Christ. That's what apathy does to us. Apathy is a poisonous attitude. An apathetic faith will say to Jesus that your cross may be enough to save me, but it is not enough to change me. Apathy says to Jesus, where, he, where you carried a cross the extra mile, I won't walk 10 steps. Jesus, where you sacrificed yourself for your enemies, I will not even love my neighbor. And so apathy has deep roots that are, that are poisonous to us as Christians, and that's why we must fight against it. And so in order to fight against apathy in our spiritual walk, we have to truly understand our faith and what it is and what it is not. And so that's what we're going to do is we're going to walk through a, po- a few points that I have this weekend, uh, a few faith is not statements, and then a few faith is statements. And that's how we're going to frame our sermon, our time together this weekend. And so um, that's the end of the longest sermon intro you've heard in your life. Uh, we did it. You made it. You got there. Here's point number one. This is the first thing that I think James is saying in, in James chapter 2 here in verse 14 and 15, or maybe it's just verse 14, and it's this, is that faith is not a mental exercise. Faith is not an intellectual exercise. It's not just in the brain. And so let me read verse 14 for us one more time. It says this, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but does not have works? Can such a faith save him? And so I'll ask the guys in the back to just leave that scripture up there for just a moment here. But there's kind of an operable word here that we need to look at during when when we're walking through this idea. So he says, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims, that's the operable word, claims to have faith but does not have works? Can such a faith save him? So someone who claims to have faith is not going to claim that faith unless they have thought about it before. We don't claim a faith that we are unfamiliar with, okay? So someone who claims to have faith has a deep understanding of faith. Someone who claims to know Jesus probably has a knowledge of his teaching. Someone who claims to know Jesus uh, probably has deep thoughts about Jesus' teaching and what it means for their life. Someone who claims to have faith will know all the right words to say in church. Uh, what, what I would say is that they know Christianese, okay? So they know the word sanctification. They can define it for you, and they can spell it correctly, okay? Someone who claims to have faith probably has an opinion about this passage that they can communicate clearly to you, even if it has not changed their life. They can still clearly communicate the ideas. But just because you have developed thoughts about faith does not mean that you have 
faith. Just because we know the story of Jesus does not mean that we participate in his kingdom. That's a choice. So here's a good example of this. Um, and, and I think it's, it's probably, it's really low-hanging fruit, if I'm honest. It is low-hanging fruit. It's an easy example to use, but it's road rage, okay? Now, I think it would be an overgeneralization to say that most of the people that I have experienced road rage from had Jesus stickers on the back of their car. Uh, I do think it's fair to say many of the people that I have experienced road rage from had Jesus stickers on the back of their car. That being said, I'm not railing against road rage because not only am I a victim, I am a perpetrator, okay? I have road rage just as much as many of you in this room, I'm sure. Uh, The point is this. uh, Just because somebody has a Jesus sticker on the back of their car does not mean that they know him, okay? Just because somebody has that sticker that says, do you follow Jesus this closely on their back bumper doesn't mean that they do follow Jesus very closely, okay? I think that sticker is very funny, by the way. <laughs> That's the idea, is that, that faith is not just something that we think about. Faith is not just something that can remain in our minds. It must have an outward appearance. Faith is not just something to be studied or to be debated. Faith is not just a topic of scholarly arguments. Because people can argue about Greek words all day, but if we do not listen to them, they're pointless. You, you can understand Greek prefixes and suffixes. I don't even know if Greek has those things. But you can argue about them all day. But, but if these words don't change your life, don't change your heart, then what are you reading them for? What are you reading them for? And so this is why I mentioned this to my students just the other night, but this is why it's a little bit heartbreaking uh, for, at, at least I think so, whenever I see on YouTube or on Facebook or any one of the social medias a video that, that's titled or, or has the subject line of, you know, like, uh, Christian destroys atheists with gospel argument. Or, or Christian, you know, like, like destroys this or that with, with arguments and, and stuff like this. And it's people just being very aggressive uh, with, with biblical topics. And, and I'll tell you why that's it's a little bit disheartening is because I feel like that is shaming the people that... Jesus calls us to love. We, we shouldn't be studying this book simply to prove why someone who doesn't believe it is wrong. That's not why. And, and so that's where an intellectual faith will lead us to where it is simply about knowing more than somebody else. It is simply more about winning a debate with somebody else. And that's exactly what this passage kind of invokes because it's so highly debated and argued over. That's what it breeds, is simply an intellectual faith. And an intellectual faith is an an apathetic faith. That's where it leads us to. And so faith cannot just be something that remains in our minds. There has to be physical evidence of it. Chuck Swindoll is an old pastor, and he said it this way, that faith is like calories. You can't see them, but you can see the results, okay? And this one hits a little bit close to home. You can't see calories in ice cream, uh, but I experienced the results consistently Uh, The idea is this. James is saying if you're a Christian, you should prove it. It can't just be here. It must be part of your actions. It can't just be in your mind. Let your actions back up your words. Excuse me. Faith is tangible. You can see it and point it out in others. So first, James addresses our minds, and then he goes on to address our emotions in the next part of this passage. So the next point is faith is not simply an emotional experience. So faith is not an intellectual exercise. It's not an emotional experience. James chapter 2, verses 15 through 17 say this. If a brother or sister is without clothes and lacks daily food, 
And one of you says to them, go in peace, stay warm, and be well fed. But you don't give them what the body needs, then what good is it? In the same way, faith, if it does not have works, is dead by itself. Now, before I even move forward with this sermon point, hear me loud and clear. Emotions are not a bad thing. Emotions are critical to faith even. I believe that God gives us emotions for a reason. is to experience this life, this, this reality that we're in deeper. It's also to experience Him deeper. If God is an emotional being and He created us, it makes sense that we would also be emotional beings. Emotions, good. Faith that is built on emotions, not great. Setting yourself up for failure truly if, if, if your faith is, is only about the emotions that you feel, then you are setting yourself up for failure. Emotions were never made to handle the weight that, that faith would put on them. That's not what they're here to do. That doesn't mean that emotions don't play a part in our faith, but we cannot base our faith upon them. And so James uses the example here of empathy and sympathy for, for others. And so uh, James pretty clearly says that faith is more than just having a deep feeling about something. So we can feel deeply for somebody who, who like you said, is on the road, has no clothes, lacks daily food, and, and we just say, God bless you. Bye. James says that that's not our faith in action. Um, just because we have a deep feeling about something doesn't mean that the actions will follow. I have a deep feeling that I want to eat Adolfo's every day for lunch, and I have a deep feeling that I would not get sick of it anytime soon. I'm convinced. Uh, the actions have not followed yet. Praise the Lord. Like I said, faith and calories is very similar. So the point is this, is that, that just because we have a deep feeling about something doesn't mean that the actions will follow. And, and so for us, if we were in the same situation that James is speaking to here, and we see somebody on the road who, who has no clothing, who has no food, who has no water, and we simply say, God bless you, and move the other direction, is that really our faith working itself out? Because we, we can feel sorry for that person. We can feel sympathy and empathy for that person. But if we do nothing about it, is that truly our faith in action? Now, that being said, I'm not saying that you need to give money to every person that asks you for money on the side of the road. That's not at all what I'm saying. But, but we cannot simply say, God bless you to this person to absolve the guilt we have over not doing anything. So maybe, maybe your role in that moment is simply to learn that person's name. Maybe your role is to simply encourage that person. Maybe your role is to present the gospel of the kingdom, which is something far greater than any money that you could give them. That's what James is saying. Is it is, faith is not just having a deep feeling of sorry or, or empathy, sympathy for that person. It is acting on those feelings. Those feelings must, they must inspire action within us. And so 1 John chapter 3, verses 16 through 18 says it this way. It says... This is how we have come to know love, that Jesus laid down his life for us. We should also lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has this world's goods and sees a fellow believer in need but withholds compassion from him, how does God's love reside in him? Little children, let us not love in word or in speech, but in action and in truth. And so John is, is just reflecting some of the same themes that James is talking about here. And he uses the word compassion. He says, if any of you has this world's goods, sees a fellow believer in need, and withholds compassion from him, how does God's love reside in him? And so in that scripture right there, the action and the emotion are tied together. That compassion is not just a feeling, but it's also sharing with that person. It's also helping that person. And so faith, real faith, is generous. It takes initiative. Actions follow the emotions and the convictions. 
So there is one last faith is not statement that I want to make for you this weekend, and it is this. Faith is not religious practice. Faith is not religious practice. So faith is not mental exercise, intellectual exercise. Faith is not just an emotional experience. And faith is not just religious actions. And so you might be right now in this moment, hold the phone, Eli, what are you talking about? Aren't we doing a religious action right now? We're doing church, right? Eli, like you're here with us. Yes, I'm here with you. Uh, and we are doing a religious action together. But here's, here's the idea, is that this religious action alone is not what... What proves our faith, it's not, it's not what shows our faith to others. It is deeper than that. Let me show you. In James chapter 2, verse 19, it says this. You believe that God is one. Good. Even the demons believe and they shudder. And so James here, that first part, that first part of the verse, you believe that God is one. That's not a question. That's a statement. You believe that God is one. And so he is directly... Um, talking about and referencing a prayer of the Jewish people, and it's called the Shema. Now, the Shema is a prayer out of Deuteronomy chapter uh, 6, verse 4, or it's chapter 4, verse 6. Let's see. Chapter 6, verse 4. I knew it. Chapter 6, verse 4, and it says this. Listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. This is a very famous passage of Scripture, uh, but it's also been repeated morning and evening as a prayer by the Jewish people for more than 4,000 years, or something like 4,000 years. Even at this point that James is writing this, this is a prayer that has been repeated for something like 16 to 18, maybe 2,000 years. It's deep, deep tradition. And he says, so you hold to the traditions. James is writing to Jewish people here who would have been very familiar with this prayer, says, you believe that God is one? Good. Even the demons believe that, and they shudder. What James is saying is this, that Jewish people could hold to their tradition, they could hold to their history, they could hold to right theology, and that wasn't even true faith in and of itself. Religious actions aren't just faith in and of themselves. Jesus believes this as well. In the Sermon on the Mount, he, he consistently hits this theme, but in, in chapter 6, he talks about generous giving, and he talks about prayer. He talks about how when we give, we shouldn't let our left hand know what our right hand is doing, or vice versa, that we shouldn't be giving to receive rewards from others, that we should give in private and in secrecy so that God our Father in heaven can reward us for those things. He says that we shouldn't just pray on the side of the city streets with, with many words and loud voices so that God will hear us because of our beautiful words and language. He says pray in private, where your Father and you can commune privately, can commune together. When we perform our religious actions simply to be seen by others or to be known as righteous, then Jesus says we already have our reward, and that reward is not given by God. And this is why faith is not simply our actions either, because we can perform religious actions, we can do good things with the motivations of others just liking us, or with the motivations of, of being famous, or to be well-known, or to be known for the good things that we do, or to be known as righteous. We can do it for pride and for our own selfish gain. And how could those actions be faithful to anything except ourselves? And to be faithful to ourselves is not to be faithful to God. Faith is not just simply religious action with the motivation of being faithful to ourselves. So if faith is not an intellectual exercise, it's not emotional experience or religious deeds, then what is it? Because I feel like all of those things are involved. I'm glad you asked. 
Uh, and it's because this is kind of the question that I've been setting you up for, and it's a trick question at the same time. So faith is all of these things. Faith requires all of these things. Faith is like a symphony. Faith has actions. Faith has deep feelings and convictions. Faith is understood on an intellectual level. It is all of these things. See, our faith is understood in the mind, felt in the heart, and is displayed in our hands. And if our faith hasn't moved from our head to our heart to our hands, then it's apathetic. Then it hasn't fully developed. So faith is all of these things. Faith is the entire meditation of the book of James. See, the, the next part of the scripture here uh, from verses 20 to 26, I won't read them again for you. Uh, James gives two examples of, of where these two characters understood faith, they felt deep convictions, and they acted on those things. Abraham's life is a mess of him trying to do that and sometimes being successful at it. But that doesn't make it not the truth. James, this book, is written to believers, and he assumes that we've accepted Christ and his salvation. And this belief in Jesus, it transforms our heart. When we truly give our will over to Jesus, we put to death the old creation. We become a new creation in Christ, molded into his image. We allow the Spirit to work in us to produce its fruit and not the fruit of our own selfish desires. Faith is transformational. Faith is choosing to live in the reality that Jesus was exactly who he says he was, that he was fully man, that he was fully God, that he lived a perfect, sinless life, and then he laid that life down willingly to pay a debt that we owed and then took it back when he rose again after three days to defeat death and to separate us from the curse of sin. And if we truly believe that, if we believe that, then it is the greatest truth that we could cling to. And if we really believe that, then shouldn't it change the way we act? If that's not a truth that you believe in, then, then it, wouldn't, it wouldn't change the way you act. But it is, if this is a truth that you'll cling to, then it must change the way that we act. If we believe all of these things about Christ, then it means that the kingdom and the teaching he brought is the single greatest priority we could have in our lives. It's not your bank account. It's not your job. It's the kingdom of God. I make no bones about that. I'm not saying that we're all perfect at it but the kingdom is our first priority. Uh, the, the root of faith in Jesus is obedience to his word and to his kingdom. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says it this way, and I've used this quote before, but only because it's really good. Uh, he says that obedience and faith are two sides of the same coin, that he who is obedient has faith, and he who has faith is obedient, that, that the presence of one requires the other, faith and obedience. See, when we trust Jesus, we obey him. And if we do not obey Jesus and what his word is, then it shows that we do not trust him. So faith is trusting in Christ and obeying his word. Faith is about responding to the one who loves us, Jesus himself. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. It's just a few pages back if you have a paper Bible. I've already made that joke about nobody having paper Bibles, but you can just swipe back a couple of pages. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Now faith is the reality of what is hoped for, the proof of what is not seen. So faith is living the way Jesus calls us to because we believe in the truthfulness and the reality of his words. It is choosing to live in that reality. We believe him, therefore we cling to him. 
Faith is the experience we have based on the choices that we make. And so I ask this question, what kind of faith do you want to have? What kind of faith do you want to have? Do you want to have an apathetic, dead faith? Or do you want to have a living faith? Because make no mistake, we choose it. We choose the faith that we have. It's not like you found Jesus, accepted him into your life, proclaimed him as your Lord, reached into the cookie jar and grabbed something and said, oh, it's dead. It's not random. We choose to live in these ways. We choose a living faith or we choose a dead faith. And how do we choose a living faith? By simply loving the Lord with all of our heart, our mind, our soul, our body, our lives. And to love our neighbor as ourselves. We choose a living faith. And so in, in all severity and in all sincerity, that is what I say to you today. Choose a living faith. Bow your heads with me this weekend.